Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Our next guest is a key player in a company that is probably among the most important or influential in the world. Forget Gina and the miners, the banks and the media moguls. This century is all about Google. It's a noun, it's a verb. In our office, it's pretty much God. Sorry, Joe. Well, we have two gods, Apple and Google, but they're both pretty important. Scott Riddle is Google's manager of strategic syndication partnerships. He'll probably tell you what that means because it's a very strange title, isn't it? In Australia and New Zealand, a position he took up in early 2011. Scott is a good fit for Google, having founded no less than three startup companies while he was still at university. He has an honours degree in law, an MBA, he topped the class, and is a graduate of the BOC's Groups Management Program. Importantly, for those of you working at community groups, part of Scott's role involves leading Google's local employee volunteering program, which we've helped them in the past promote. In his spare time, he's working on another new social enterprise, which I'd love to hear about at another time. So please make him welcome. Uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks so much first for the invitation and uh, for the kind introduction, Dennis. Um, before I get started, I should just point out that uh, working with the community sector is, uh, is definitely not my day job uh, at Google. Day-to-day, um, -day I manage Google's strategic uh, monetization partnerships or syndication partnerships uh, with Australia and New Zealand's largest media companies. And um, I could tell you what that means, but I would bore the hell out of you. So uh, let's just we'll, we'll move quickly along. But I can say it's, uh, it's very much in line with uh, some of the issues that um, Margaret was talking about uh, in her talk. Um, one of the great things about Google, though, is that the culture actively encourages you to pursue your, uh, your interests and passions uh, in the context of your work, if possible. And my big interest and passion just happens to be social enterprise and all of the, uh, the, interest, the, the interesting issues associated with the convergence of commercial venture and, uh, and social purpose. And because of that interest, uh, I happen to have had a lot of engagement with nonprofits outside of work. And when I started at Google, I was blown away by the number of tools and special offers that, that Google makes available to nonprofits, but equally alarmed by the, the lack of awareness locally about those tools. So in addition to my day job, but very far apart from my day job, uh, as Dennis said, I coordinate a team of volunteers who run education workshops for nonprofits uh, uh, on Google tools. Uh, and more recently, I've started leading Google's broader skill-based employee volunteering program, something called Google Serve 20. Um, which is actually just yet to, to launch in Australia. It should happen sometime in July. So hopefully that bit of context gives you uh, a sense of my interest in uh, grasp of and relationship with uh, this topic, um, technological stewardship, charting your course in an increasingly digital world. Um, it is a big topic, uh, and really I will just be picking at its very edges uh, in the next 20 minutes, so, next 20 minutes or so. But let me tell you how I plan to do my picking. Um, I'm claiming that we live in an increasingly digital world and being a Google employee, it's, it's basically incumbent upon me to back up any statement with some data. Uh, so I'll start with some numbers. Uh, then we'll delve into implications and my plan here was just to look at the, the 
the activities of a typical community organisation and, and how they're being impacted by some key digital trends. And finally, we'll consider uh, how organisations can best respond. Uh, it is a lot to cover. Uh, I always try and ram a bit too much into these talks, so uh, we, uh, we best get started. Uh, so let's look at numbers. Um, Australia. 80% of Australians now online. That's 18 million uh, internet connections, up from 6.5 in 2000. 66% of households now with broadband versus 16% just eight years ago. 52% of people now with smartphones, up from 37% uh, just one year ago. So what that means is that whether they're doing it from mobile, tablet or desktop, uh, the average Australian user is spending about 22 hours online uh, last year compared to six in, uh, in 2000. If you look globally, half the world's population is expected to be online by about 2016. Every year, another 200 million people go online for the very first time. So, you know, roughly 10 times the population of Australia is hitting the internet, i.e. becoming internet connected, for the very first time every year. And in the 10 years to 2010, internet users in developed economies, like Australia, uh, tripled. Uh, but in the rest of the world, i.e. the developing world, that number grew tenfold. Massive, massive numbers. So at this point, it's probably worth remembering that, uh, and some of you may have heard this before, but it's one of my favourites. Uh, in 1943, uh, Thomas Watson, the, the then chairman of IBM, stood up in front of a group of investors and said he believed that there was a worldwide demand for five computers. Uh, <laughs> how much of things change from a time, from that time, when computing was seen as a tool for, one, for only the largest uh, governments and businesses, to today, when the smartphone in your hand is a million times cheaper, 100,000 times smaller, and, a th and thousands of times more powerful than the corporate mainframes built in the 1970s. It's also worth remembering that the amount of free information available to a user of a computer has escalated from only the documents sitting on that computer in the 1960s to an estimated one trillion pages, trillion pages plus, uh, of the World Wide Web, uh, as it was estimated uh, to be late in 2011. Some very, very massive change. And finally, some Google numbers. Now, I have to apologise, but Google is notoriously uh, shy about releasing numbers, so I, I managed to squeeze out just a couple. Um, 800 million unique users visit YouTube every month. Over 72 hours of video was uploaded to YouTube every minute in 2011. Now, someone in the YouTube team helped put this in context for me. Uh, just last week, actually, more video is uploaded to YouTube in a month, a single month, than all three major US TV networks have broadcast in the last 60 years. So massive, massive amounts of, uh, of data going in there. And here's, uh, this is the one that kind of blows my mind. Uh, more than 850,000 Android devices, so I don't have one with me, but uh, uh, Google's, Google software smartphones uh, are activated every single day. Uh, I don't know about you, but that I find quite mind-boggling. So before I showed you these numbers, I was probably talking to, uh, listening to, at least following the tweets and listening to the questions before, uh, an audience is converted to the idea that we are living in an increasingly digital world. But what I hope these numbers at least reminded you of is the, is the scale and, uh, and the pace of that change. So that change is inevitably going to touch on every facet of your organisation, and in the process it's going to throw up some major questions about the way you do things. However, I personally believe... Uh, that if those trends, if those changes are, are well managed, um, they offer massive opportunity as well, massive positive uh, opportunity. So let's uh, look at a few of those trends as they relate to the activities of a typical community organisation. And I didn't plan it this way, 
but it turns out to be a nice segue from, from Margaret's talk uh, because I wanted to start with reach, reaching and engaging with your audience. And for me, uh, I mean, there's lots of trends here, but two stand out uh, for their game-changing potential. I think everyone in the room will be familiar with YouTube, uh, but what fewer people might realise... Actually, incidentally, how many, how many people didn't know that YouTube is owned by Google? Uh, quite a few. It always surprises me. So, yeah, YouTube is, was acquired by Google uh, a couple of years back. So a lot of you will be familiar with, with, uh, with YouTube, but fewer people realise that YouTube's actually rapidly making the transition from a, a short-form, user-generated video playback platform. That's a long... That's a big mouthful. Uh, to a fully-fledged, long-form content and live broadcast medium. If you visit youtube.com forward slash live today, uh, you'll find hundreds of live, live broadcasts going to air via YouTube. What makes this trend more profound, in my opinion, is its close alignment with another better-known trend, and one that we were talking about quite a bit this morning already, um, that of social. Some of you may have heard about Google+. Plus. Uh, and contrary to what the media would have you believe, Google Plus isn't designed to be Google's Facebook killer. Um, Google Plus is actually uh, a unifying social layer that binds together and, I guess, socialises all of Google's previously disparate products and services. Now, I'm definitely not going to wax lyrical about the benefits of Google Plus, uh, A, because I don't have the time, and B, I'm sure most of you have already kind of bought into the, the benefits of social. But what I really wanted to do was draw your attention to the very recent pairing of social and online broadcast. So only a couple of weeks ago, Google announced that any individual or organisation on Google Plus could use a Hangout. And for those of you who don't know, a Hangout is the, the Google Plus multi-person video chat. So imagine a whole lot of people on one, in one virtual room being able to talk freely amongst themselves, Skype for many people at a time. They can now use Google Plus to launch uh, a live broadcast. Um, so now anyone can effectively broadcast live to a global audience via Hangout on Air because that Hangout on Air is syndicated through the YouTube Live platform. Now, I'd like you to just stop for a moment and think about what that means because I guess there is, for example, no reason that an event like this couldn't be broadcast live globally with facilitated live interactive discussions between all of the attendees. So effectively, overnight, the power to broadcast messages which really was a power previously re reserved for um, large media corporations and the, you know, the Murdochs of the world, it's suddenly open to anyone and everyone. And obviously there's, there's downsides to that, as we were alluding, about before, alluding to before, uh, but there is tremendous upside as well. I mean, think about what it might mean for your organisation or any organisation's ability to activate an audience through what I'm calling democratised broadcast uh, and then to deeply engage with that audience via social media. It's pretty, uh, pretty massive change. So, technology is also beginning to solve uh, some pretty big problems in and of itself, and often these are problems that, are, that technology is uniquely capable of solving, and for me here, there are two uh, particularly interesting trends, and one, again, we've kind of touched on this morning, which is, is crowdsourcing, and the interactive web has suddenly created a, a new way for millions of people to collaborate on problem solving in a whole lot of new and interesting ways. Uh, I'm going to use Google Maps here as an example, but I mean, I'll say as an example, there's loads and loads of examples. Um, the, the problem for Google uh, was that while, while it can buy pre-existing mapping data for the Google Maps service, which I'm sure a lot of you have used, uh, in developed countries around the world, uh, pre-existing mapping data doesn't actually exist for a lot of developing countries. So the solution 
was to crowdsource that information by developing MapMaker. And what MapMaker does is it allows people anywhere to add to Google Maps, add their own local mapping data, which is then validated on the back end by Google. So, for example, in Pakistan, Google, Google MapMaker users mapped 25,000 kilometres of their own roads in just two months. Uh, in Dharamashala, uh, a small Indian hill station, uh, the roads had actually never been mapped. They were actually too winding uh, for cartographers to ever actually map. But the villagers there really wanted a map. They hopped online, and within two weeks, they'd mapped their whole village uh, with a huge impact for, uh, for trade and, uh, and tourism. I was going to show you, but I'm always too scared of doing demos and things like this. But if you go to MapMaker, Google MapMaker Pulse, and you can see in real time the edits being made to maps around the world uh, by Google users, and there's thousands and thousands of every day. It's quite, it's quite mind-boggling. Um, there are loads and loads of uh, new operating models being developed around this whole concept of crowdsourcing. Plan Big um, is another Australian one that I've seen, which is basically crowdsourcing for big ideas. You know, loads and loads. Once again all new models that were previously impossible before the advent of the interactive web. Another big development uh, that's creating new forms of problem solving is this idea of big data. Um, big data refers to data sets that grow so large and complex that they become awkward to work with with normal, um, normal database management tools. And really, if you think about it, in today's information-centric world, it's got to the point where data is actually a key factor of production. To the extent that last year, McKinsey produced a paper that uh, a paper that called big data the next frontier for innovation, competition, and productivity. Now, I have loads and loads of examples, uh, some very very sexy examples uh, of big data in action. Uh, but for me, the simplest one is uh, something called the Google Flu Trends Project. Um, basically, Google realised that using uh, aggregated data on searches for flu, it could map in real time and even predict. Um, epidemics. Not only for flu, they've done it for dengue fever as well. So basically, the moment you start to feel sick, uh, what a lot of people do is they hop online and they do a search for symptoms of flu. Um, flu remedies, uh, cough syrup, nearest pharmacy. Like, essentially, Google aggregates uh, data from all around the world uh, and can pick out trends and patterns happening pretty quickly and then share that information with health agencies. There's loads of examples of that happening. Uh, Google flu trends is just one. If you're interested in more about that, uh, hop on to google.org. Uh, the other one that, that, that's really interesting that they're working on is um, partnering with child protection agencies to mine the, the masses and masses of data that comes from social worker lot files to pick out trends and quickly isolate children uh, who might be you know, in, in difficulty. Uh, loads of examples. Um, Google's actually released a new service called Google Big Query, uh, which... Uh, I think very excitingly, essentially makes Google's computing power available to anyone that wants to do this. Uh, Google is the single biggest computing infrastructure in the world, and basically what this product does is says, here we go. Uh, if you have a large data set that you want to play with, uh, you can use it uh, with this tool. So massive amounts of new data, uh, new insight, new solutions uh, open to organizations that can properly analyze big data. Education. Um, how, am I, how am I going for time? Applying the, the broader sense of the word, I'd argue that the vast majority of community organisations are involved in education of, uh, of some kind or other. Analyzing data is one thing, but a whole raft of new technologies are emerging to actually better visualise data. Now, that may not seem very exciting in itself, but I think the recent proliferation of infographics online 
uh, is testament to the fact that visual representation actually helps people better understand and engage with what are often very complex issues, i.e. It, it supports education. So whether it's your funding partners, your project team, uh, the general public, being able to visually articulate your issues is actually quite a powerful thing. And tools like Google Earth and Google Maps have made it much easier for organisations to tell their stories using um, geographic representation. But uh, other tools like the Google Public Data Explorer have also brought large public data sets to life using simple visualisations. Now, I really wanted to do a demo of this one for you, but uh, basically it takes very large data sets of demographic data from around the world and shows you trends uh, over time. But again, Google, Google Public Data Explorer, you'll find it very easy, some amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, actually, for those interested in taking baby steps towards uh, data visualisation, if you want to do it in your own organisation, if you hop into Google Docs, if you click on the Documents or the Drive uh, link at the, uh, on your uh, Google black bar, if you're ever logged in, um, look for something called Fusion Tables in, uh, in Google Docs because that's kind of Google's first foray into making this stuff uh, freely available to, to anyone. Now on to uh, MOOCs, or uh, Massive Open Online Courses. Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, once said, imagine a world in which every single person on the planet is given free access to the sum of all human knowledge. I am really excited by the role being played by this new breed of classrooms, breed of online classrooms, because I think they bring us just one step closer to this ideal. Uh, in 2011, just uh, last year, there were 160,000 students in 190 countries who enrolled in an open entry artificial intelligence course uh, at Stanford University. Basically, Stanford threw up the course, uh, Artificial Intelligence 101, and saw, just to see what would happen, and nearly 200,000 people uh, enrolled. The numbers caught them massively by surprise, uh, and as a result, they've now opened 13 additional courses to the world, including anatomy, cryptography, game theory, and natural language processing. And other Ivy League universities, including MIT, have now jumped on board, and they're starting to make more of their courses available online as well. Personally, I think this completely changes the game in the quest to better educate the world because what it means is that suddenly it's not necessarily about building physical schools and recruiting thousands of teachers. And suddenly, the expertise of the world's greatest teachers isn't locked away at fancy universities available to only the richest people in the world. It's available instantly to, to everyone. Google also uh, recently funded something called the Khan Academy. And for those of you who are TEDx fans, you would have heard about Khan. Um, Khan has over 3,500 videos on everything from arithmetic to physics, finance, and history. Um, and it's founded on the, on the idea that children, actually anyone, uh, is able to learn what they want, when they want, and at their own pace. So you can imagine classrooms around the world sharing a, a high-quality common curriculum where teachers are only there to assist the students that are having problems uh, as all the other students work their own way through uh, the material in their own time, self-testing themselves before they can access the next unit of material. So some very, very profound changes to the way we think about education being brought about by digital. When we got on to uh, operations and admin uh, in community organisations, the big trend here is definitely uh, cloud computing. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, cloud computing means that rather than buying a piece of software, uh, installing it and using it on a computer that you physically own, you basically rent access to applications that are stored in, in vast servers around the world. And services like Hotmail and Gmail are actually some early examples of, of cloud computing. An increasing number of applications are actually becoming available in the cloud. This presentation 
I don't have a, a file and a stick or anything with me to run this presentation. It's running from Google Docs presentations somewhere in the cloud. Um, basically, all of Google's services. Google was, likes to say that it was born in the cloud, so all of its services uh, have been created in the cloud. For small community organizations, one of the obvious implications is the end to large upfront uh, software costs. But I think more importantly, it's actually changing the way that some organizations work quite fundamentally. That fundamental change is often linked to another major trend, which is uh, mobile. And I, I could give you millions of figures about the prolifer proliferation of mobile. Uh, I was talking to someone yesterday in the office, and they were saying that uh, in some verticals, like insurance or banking, auto, whatever, uh, the searches that Google's getting, uh, somewhere between a quarter and a third of all the searches that Google's getting now are coming from mobile devices. And they reckon that in four to five years, there might be parity between desktop and mobile searches. So because your applications and data live in the cloud, they're actually accessible via any internet-connected device, including mobile devices. And as we heard, we heard before, more and, me, more and more people have access to mobile devices. And there are some really uh, innovative organizations taking advantage of new cloud computing models. So um, I'm trying to th I think, for example, what it mean, might mean for mobile health practitioners or a, or a social worker working in the field that all her applications and all her data, his or her uh, um, data, are, are living in the cloud rather than sitting in an office somewhere. Uh, I don't have time to do it now, but uh, if you have time, um, check out an organization called SummerSource. Uh, Google made a, a $1.5 million donation to SummerSource last year, um, and they've won huge accolades for the work that they've done. Effectively, what they do is they use a cloud model to outsource work, uh, small what they call microtasks in the developed world, uh, to workers in developing countries. It's not to say that it couldn't have been done before cloud computing, but really it's, it's being enabled and made you know, much easier by, uh, by cloud computing. Uh, a really great video on YouTube uh, on SummerSource as well. Okay, now I'm running uh, short on time, but I have to mention fundraising because I know it's uh, an issue close to many of your hearts. Um, what I really wanted to, to call out were, were two big trends, um, digital direct response and, and crowdfunding. Um, it saddens me, and as I say, I do I work with quite a few non, quite a few nonprofits that uh, a lot of organizations haven't yet cottoned on to the power or even the idea of, uh, of digital direct response. And what I mean here is that previously there was a lot of friction in the fundraising process. So historically, let's say Greenpeace might have uh, sent out a mailer to all of its members asking them for a, a campaign donation. And that letter may have sat on the dining room table for weeks after it was read because acting on it at the time might have just been a little bit too hard for the reader for all sorts of different reasons. And the impact of that original call-to-action message in the letter is lost as time goes by. And as time passes, it gets less and less likely that there's going to be a donation. And that's what I'm talking about when I say friction. Today, though, uh, you can produce a YouTube video that is designed to capture a, a viewer's imagination. And then alongside that video is a donate button to facilitate an instant donation. Or you could, uh, you could create a, a digital campaign on email where readers click on a link at the end to instantly sign up, donate, volunteer, you know, whatever the action is that you want them to take. But significantly, for the first time, you can measure the impact of that message with real metrics and then learn and iterate until you really understand what resonance resonates with your audience. Uh, so, yeah, you're kind of improving all the time. But unfortunately... Uh, I can probably count on one, maybe two hands, uh, the number of organisations in Australia that actually have really got this uh, in the non-profit space. Um, 
on crowdfunding, I think I'm, I'm not really going to talk about crowdfunding because given all the publicity that a lot of those key players have received, I think most of you get the idea of crowdfunding. I mean, basically, think crowdsourcing that we've talked about a lot this morning, um, except with money. Uh, so, uh, conscious of time again. How do you as a leader in a community organisation ensure that your organisation actually uh, makes the most of all these changes? And I would love to say that I have some sort of uh, secret source answer to that question for you. Um, but really I just have three very simple suggestions. The first is real long-term strategic planning. Um, it's a little scary to me sometimes when we, you know, we send volunteers out into some organisations for specific projects and I find it amazing that... Um, how few organisations actually do strategic planning in the non-profit sector, how many organisations actually stop and question in a very structured way whether their reason for being will be supported or completely negated by technological change over, say, the next five years, or whether new technologies might allow them to do things better. If you're sitting there thinking that your, your board and management team might not be uh, equipped to ask those questions, then you really need to seek out the people that can. In fact, you might want to revisit the composition uh, of your board and your management team. I remember reading an info exchange survey. Um, it, was a, it was a report a, a, not that long ago, but I think it was done in 2009, and it found that the, the vast majority of surveyed organisations uh, lacked digital proficiency and had no technology plan in place. Now, that was in 2009. I'm, pr I'm pretty sure it was, but um, I, I, I'd venture to say it's probably very much the same today. Uh, however, you know, having said all that, without the right talent, uh, you really can't get past go on this stuff. And finally, uh, just to add a strong dose of practical realism and just to stress that I'm not really a, a, you know, a massive digital hardcore evangelist, um, while I am uh, all for adopting digital, embracing digital, uh, I really think it should only be done when it really adds value. Be wary of someone who comes back from an event like this insistent that you, that you invest time and energy in deploying new technology or setting up a Twitter, Facebook, or dare I say, a, a Google Plus page. Um, the first question when it comes to technology or anything digital should always be, is this really going to help our organisation fulfil our mission better? And if the answer is no, uh, or if you're even unsure, um, this is probably a change that, that you can do without. So looking at time, I think it's probably best that I wrap up there and, uh, and open for questions. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.